We are continuing our series that Dwayne kicked off for us two weeks ago, and I want to thank Dwayne for filling the pulpit for the last two Sundays. And as he filled the pulpit the last two Sundays, he launched us into our summer series, which is a series that all of our pastors will share in, uh, Adam and Paul Hurst as well. And we're going through uh, the first five books of Revelation and we're called, we've called this sermon series the final word because this is the final word that Jesus gives to his church. It's the final word that we have written in uh, recorded scripture. And as the men who wrote and put together the canon of scripture were inspired, this, these are the last words that are given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church. And specifically in the first five chapters, we're looking particularly at Jesus' message, Jesus' final word to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And because what is unique about the seven churches in Asia Minor is it gives us seven characteristics of things that you could probably find in any church. The good, the bad, and the ugly. For instance, last week we looked at the church of Ephesus and that Jesus commends them on many things, but he gives them this very scathing indictment that you, Church of Ephesus, have lost and left your first love. Well, we continue this series on the final word by looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And this is the final word to the church of Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write... The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, no, the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. When you're in love, you'll do anything for that person. They often call it crazy love because we will do crazy things for the people that we have fallen in love with. We'll do things that are over and above what we would do for just the acquaintances and mere friends in our life. When we find that person or that thing that we love, we will do whatever it takes to be with that person or to do for that person. A few months ago, you might remember in the sermon series uh, that we talked about in the Upside Down Kingdom, we talked about people doing some pretty unusual things for those that they love. And you might recall the story I told of a husband and a wife that were separated and going through a divorce, but because the woman, the wife still had a deep sense of love for her husband, and her husband was in need of a kidney, She gave up her kidney for her husband. Although estranged, although going through a divorce, she still had great love for her husband and they eventually 
reconciled and reunited. You do crazy things for the people that you love. You might remember the story of the Duke of Windsor, Edward VIII. Remember, Duke of Windsor, Edward VIII, was in line to take the throne of England as the next king of England. But what did he do? He fell in love with uh, an American. And not only an American, a divorced American. And not only a divorced American, but somebody who wasn't even part of the Church of England. And it caused him to do what? It caused the Duke of Windsor to abdicate the throne. He lost everything for the woman that he loved, Wallace Simpson. If you're in love, you give up everything. You might recall the story of Dakota Meyer. Remember the great story of Dakota Meyer, who was the Marine in Afghanistan. And it against the orders of his superiors went into the combat zone again and again and again to rescue all of the men and the women that were under fire, that were under siege, against the order of his superiors. And he went on to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. You do crazy things for those that you love. And likewise here in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is writing this final word to the church of Smyrna and saying, if you love me, you will be faithful even to the point of death. What Jesus is saying is, you will do crazy things if you love me. Even be willing to give up your life. Even be willing to sacrifice it all for me. Even to the point of death. He, Jesus is calling them into a radical devotion. A sacrificial devotion. And why? We have to understand what was going on in the first century in the church of Smyrna. You see, the church of Smyrna was, the, was one of the capitals of pagan worship people would actually descend upon the church of Smyrna, the, the city of Smyrna every single year, just as they made the people of God made pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God and pay homage to God, the pagans would, would um, descend upon Smyrna every year and they would go to the temples of the pagans and the pagan gods. But in fact, Smyrna went to another level. Not only did they worship the pagan gods, this was the center of emperor worship. You see, in the first century, they believed that Caesar was like a god. And all of the, all of the cities in Asia Minor competed to have a temple built to Caesar. It was Caesar Tiberius at the time. And Smyrna won. They won the lot to build the temple to the emperor. So once a year, people would descend and make pilgrimage to Smyrna to worship the emperor Tiberius or whoever was the emperor or Caesar at the time. That's why Jesus calls it a synagogue here. A synagogue of Satan. But because they were so embedded into emperor and pagan worship, the Christians were under siege. They were being attacked and persecuted for their faith. And that's why he tells them, I require a radical sacrificial devotion even to the point of death. You see, Jesus knew that if they were to renounce and to say they did not believe in the emperor as God and as deity, that they would be put to death. And so he calls them to be faithful even to the point of death. And for us here living in North America, this might seem like an ancient issue, right? 
Because living in North America today doesn't seem like we're under any type of persecution. For some of us, suffering for Americans is having to wait in line at the Apple store. And that's about the extent of the suffering that we experience. But I want to ask you this question this morning is maybe the reason that we do not face persecution as they did in the early church, or maybe the reason we don't face persecution like the tens of thousands of people all around the world are facing persecution. Have we compromised? Or maybe have we even settled? You see, because today, not in North America, but all around the world, there are more martyrs have been, more people have been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ in the last thousand years than in the last 1900 years combined. There are more Christians dying for their faith in the last century than the last 1900 years combined. For us in North America, we've become complacent, we have compromised, we have settled. But what words does Jesus give to those that live in sacrificial obedience to God? What words of hope does Jesus give to those that are facing suffering and adversity and struggle? He gives them this good news. He gives us two things, and there are two things I want to look at briefly this morning For those that are in the midst of suffering and adversity or struggle, however you might define that this morning for you, it might be struggle and adversity in business, it might be struggle and adversity in a relationship, or in your marriage, or in your home, or in your life, or in your health, whatever it might be, Jesus gives us two words, two words of hope for those facing adversity and struggle this morning. The first, he gives us purpose. What is the purpose of our adversity? He gives us the purpose of our adversity in verse 10. What does Jesus tell us? He says, do not fear you were about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Why? Here's the purpose. To test you so that you might be tested. What are we being tested for? When we face persecution or suffering or struggle or adversity of any kind, what is being tested? Our loyalty, our faith, our allegiance to Jesus Christ. You see, the devil would love nothing more than in the midst of your adversity, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your, of your suffering, for you to doubt your faith in Jesus Christ. How many people have you heard say, and maybe you have even fallen victim to this, to say, where is God in all of this? Maybe some of you have lost a loved one prematurely, lost a spouse, maybe even lost a child. Some of you have been recently diagnosed with cancer. Some of you have gone through a divorce or are going through a divorce. Some of you have had it all and have lost it all. Some of you are unemployed this morning. Some of you are facing depression this morning. And you often hear people say when they are struggling or in the midst of adversity, where is my God? And the devil would love nothing more than in the midst of adversity and struggle and suffering for you to doubt your faith to question your faith, to doubt and to question the existence of God in your life. And so that's why Jesus says you will be tested. And that's the purpose of your adversity. That's the struggle of your testing. For you to be able to say, if you were to have it all stripped away, if you were to have everything of this world stripped away, would you still find Jesus as beautiful? 
Or have you just fallen in love with the benefits of Jesus and not Jesus himself? If everything was to be ripped away tomorrow and you were to only have Jesus, that's a test. Would you still find him as beautiful? Would you still find him as magnificent and marvelous? Job, the story of Job, is the story of he loses everything. He loses his spouse. He loses his, his home. He loses his livelihood. And what does he say at the end? Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he, though he slay me, I will serve him. What's the story of, of Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? What does he say? He says, a messenger of Satan has come to visit me, a thorn in my side. And Paul says, I have pleaded three times for the Lord to relieve me of this pain. And what is, what is Paul's answer? He says, no. God has chosen not to relieve me of this pain and of this adversity and this struggle. And what is his response? For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, what adversity does is it tests our faith. It tests our loyalty and allegiance to God. And as John Piper said when he was diagnosed with cancer, don't waste your cancer. I challenge you with the same thing. What is the God God-centered purpose of your current adversity and struggle. It is not to draw you away from God. In fact, it's to draw you closer and nearer to God. So just as John Piper says, don't waste your cancer. I challenge you, don't waste your challenge. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your adversity. Don't waste your struggle. Don't waste it. Because there is a God-centered purpose in it. To not draw you away from God, but to press you closer to Him to be more dependent upon him, to realize that if I was to lose everything, that really I would also have it all in the person of Jesus Christ. Actually, we realize in the midst of adversity that without him, I have nothing. Without him, I am nothing. There is purpose in your struggle and in your suffering. But Jesus not only tells us that there is purpose in our suffering and our adversity, he also gives us a promise that there is a real God-centered promise in our adversity for those that know Jesus Christ. What hope do we have in the midst of adversity and suffering and struggle? The first promise is his companionship. We have the companionship of Christ in our suffering and our adversity. We see it first in verse 9. Jesus says, I know, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and not, but are the synagogue of Satan. What is Jesus trying to say? He's saying, I'm not just aware of your tribulation and of your suffering. The word here for know is to have an intimate, deep knowledge and understanding to the point where there is empathy on behalf of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't just saying, I'm aware of your tribulation. He is basically saying, I've experienced it myself. I have such a deep knowledge of your poverty and of your struggle and of your tribulation. Because why? Because I have experienced myself and he has, hasn't he? We sing the hymn about Jesus. He's called the what? The man of sorrows. You see, Jesus is the man of sorrows who not only is aware of our tribulation, but has taken on 
our tribulation on our behalf. You see, Jesus is the one who does not just stand up in the heavens and says, get over your suffering. He says, I have gone through your suffering for you. I have taken on your tribulation. I have taken on your poverty. I have taken on your suffering. I have taken on your struggle. You see, when we struggle, Jesus takes it very personally. It's why the author of Hebrews is able to call Jesus the empathetic high priest. He says, I know because I've experienced it. I felt it. And Jesus walks along with us. He says to the church of Smyrna, and he says to us this morning, I know your suffering. I know your adversity. I know your struggle. But here's the good news. You're not alone. You have a companion in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why he says to Saul on the road to Damascus, what does he say? He doesn't say to Saul, why are you persecuting those Christians? What does he say? It's very interesting. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What is Jesus trying to say to Saul? That when you oppress someone who is found in my name, when you oppress a son or a daughter of God, you are oppressing me. That's why Jesus is able to say to the poor when they are oppressed that I am oppressed as well. That when the orphan is oppressed, that Jesus is oppressed as well. That's why Jesus can become the father to the orphan and the husband to the widow. He's a companion to those that are suffering and adverse. He takes our suffering personally. And that is why Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church exists. That's why we always have existed and that's why we exist today. To send a message to South Florida and throughout the world that there is hope in the person of Jesus Christ. That our message to the, to the dying and hurting and suffering world is that Coral Ridge is a beacon of hope and of light. That we stand with you as a church. That we are heralds and ambassadors of hope and reconciliation to a hurting and dying and suffering world. We send the message to the world that you are not alone. That there is a Savior. There is a Rescuer. And then lastly, not only is there the promise of companionship, but there's the promise of a great reward. In verse 9, Jesus not only says that I know your tribulation and your poverty, but he says something very fascinating. He says, but you are rich. What Jesus is trying to say there is there is a greater reward for those that are found in Christ that although on this side of heaven you might have lost it all, you might have lost your career and your fame or your money or your dreams or whatever you have set out as your expectations this side of heaven, you could lose it all. But for those that are found in Christ, you have more wealth and more riches than you could ever hope for or imagine in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is good news for us this morning. And then not only in verse 9 does he, says, does he say that in Christ we are really rich, but in verse 10 he says what? He says, be faithful unto death, the second half of verse 10, and I will give you the crown of life. You see, Smyrna, along with the other cities in this region, were known for their competitive games, and they would have known what it meant to have the crown, the victor's crown. And what Jesus is saying to them is although you might lose your crown here on earth, there will be a greater crown that awaits for you. You might lose the battle here on earth, but there is a greater war that is waging. And for those that are found in Christ, 
Although you might lose the crown of earth, you will gain the great victor's crown on that day when you meet Jesus face to face. For those that know him and confess him as Lord and as Savior, for those that recognize that Jesus is the only hope, that he is the Savior of your sin and the rescuer for your redemption, there is a crown of life. And then in verse 11, the great reward not only of being, of having the riches of heaven and having the crown of life, but in verse 11 it says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You see, there will be a first death that all of us will experience. It's inevitable. We will all die. But there is a second death and an even greater death that is written about in the New Testament. And it is the second death, which is the great death, which is the eternal separation from God himself. And what Jesus is saying is, although you might be hurt by the first death there in Smyrna, and you might fall to the sword of the emperor, have no fear that you will face persecution, you will face death, but those that are found in Jesus will never be hurt. You will never be touched by the second death. In Romans eight eighteen, Paul says that suffering is a blink, but that the glory that we receive as children of God will be eternal. And then at the very end of Revelation, this book that we are working through, what is the great promise found in the book of Revelation for those that are found in Christ? It says there will be no more death, no more suffering, no more tears, no more depression, no more cerebral palsy, no more obesity, no more handicap, no more dementia, no more divorce, no more pain. No more, no more, no more. That is the great promise. And the great reward for those that are found in Christ. I end with this question this morning. This final word to the church of Smyrna, which is relevant for us today, this morning here at Coral Ridge. This call to be faithful unto death. I leave you with this question. How is one faithful unto death? How do we do live in radical devotion and obedience to God, even being willing to give it all up this side of heaven for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of Jesus Christ? How do we do the crazy things for those that we love? We hear stories in church history of Peter, the Apostle Peter, asking to be what? Crucified upside down because he didn't find himself worthy enough to be crucified right side up. We hear of a man by the name of Polycarp, who was actually the bishop of Smyrna, an apostle of John, that he was arrested in 157 AD because he refused to swear allegiance to Caesar. And he was told by the governor, he was told if you simply deny your God and swear allegiance to Caesar, then you will be set free. And Polycarp says this, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? And the governor said to Polycarp, but, but, but you will be burned at the stake. And Polycarp looked at the crowds and he looked at the fire. He said, I'm not worried about this fire. I'm only worried about the fire that is to come. Take my life. Take my life. You see, the only way 
that we can be faithful unto death is when we have been captured by the one, Jesus Christ, who has been faithful unto death. You see, the reason Polycarp is able to take that stand for Jesus is because Polycarp understood that Jesus has stood up for him. Actually, literally, Jesus has stood in for him and has taken his place. You see, Jesus is the ultimate Duke of Windsor who gives it all up. Jesus is the ultimate king who gives up his crown and gives up his throne and gives up his place in heaven and gives up his status as the favored son of God and comes down to earth and sacrifices it all for you. And it is when we are captured by that reality and captured by that love, then we in response can respond in faithful love. Faithful even to the point of death. We look to the cross. The cross that on the one hand was shame and suffering and adversity for our Savior Jesus Christ. But the same cross brings us hope and brings us life. For all of us, if we're all honest, at some point in our life, even maybe this morning, we feel down. We feel beaten down by life. We struggle. We suffer. And there's often times in our life where we question, is it all worth it? Where is God in the storm? Where is God in the suffering? Where is God in the pain? Well, one person knew this struggle and knows this struggle and adversity all too well. Her name's Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson Tata is a popular speaker and author, and many that know her testimony know that as a teenager was paralyzed in a diving accident. And Johnny Erickson Tata talks about her struggle and her adversity. The rest of her life, uh, uh, um, her life uh, committed to living her life in a wheelchair, handicapped, paralyzed for the rest of her life. And she talks about her struggle. She talks about her adversity. And she talks about her wedding day. And she talks about the awkward nature of her wedding day. The day that was supposed to be the happiest day of her life. And here she is paralyzed. And she's trying to get into her dress. And it requires three friends to pick her up to just to fit her into her wedding dress. She doesn't feel beautiful. She doesn't feel like a bride, a beautiful bride. And her friends take her body, her paralyzed body, and fit her into her wedding dress and put her into the wheelchair. And on her way of wheeling her into the sanctuary to process down the aisle, her wheel goes over the wedding dress and now there's a big streak of grease on her beautiful white wedding dress. And the last thing that she wants to do is go before all of those people and walk down that aisle or go down that aisle in her wheelchair. She doesn't feel beautiful. She doesn't feel like a bride. The last thing she wants to do is see anyone. But as soon as she turns the corner and looks down the aisle, she sees her groom. And her groom has the biggest smile on his face. And Johnny Erickson Tata says, it was at that moment that my groom looked at me. My future husband looked at me and smiled at me in such a way that I felt beautiful for the very first time. It was the smile of the groom that let her know it was okay. You see, for us this morning, for us that are struggling and suffering, for those in the midst of adversity, you know the good news 
that you have a Savior that looks down upon you and smiles at you. And it's through His life and through His death and through His resurrection that you are made beautiful. And more than just standing at the end of an aisle and smiling at you, this groom, the great bridegroom, Jesus Christ, came down out of heaven and rescued you and offers you this morning eternal life and life more abundantly and says to you this morning, although you might be poor, in Christ you can be rich. Although you might be broken, in Christ you can be redeemed. Although you might feel worthless, in Christ you are the favored child of God. In this life, you might have experienced one loss after the other, but in the person of Jesus Christ, you have the very crown of life for all of eternity. So Coleridge, be faithful. Coleridge, be faithful unto death because you have a faithful God whose love will never end.